Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. District Council's officers had always been chosen by delegates and handpicked by the local union's leaders. The consent decree instructed the IRO to implement and supervise the first rank-and-file election in the District Council history. IRO Convoy drafted rules for conducting a secret ballot election, including rules for nominating candidates disseminating information about nominated candidates to memberships at union expense and conducting a secret ballot election. Local 17, the largest local in the district council, was created in 1981. Jurisdictional dispute between two Genovese crime family crews resulted in Genovese consigliere awarding Local 17 to Barney Bellamo's crew. Enrico Ratola was elected business manager and three years later was selected as Local 17's delegate to the District Council. Convoy filed disciplinary charges against Rotella, alleging that he lied on a deposition, referred union members to a non-union contractor, referred ineligible union members to jobs, and routinely associated with Elsian members. Convoy's investigation uncovered a dire financial situation, numerous job rule violations, and links to organized crime. Convoy requested that the Carpenters UBC International Union impose a trusteeship over Local 17. In April 1995, the General President complied appointing a trustee. Convoy began an investigation of the Javits Center owned and operated by a public corporation, New York Convention Center Operating Corporation. The two district council's representatives at the Javits Center were Anthony Fioroni and Leonard Simon. Fioroni was a Genovese crime family acting boss, Barney Bellamo's brother-in-law, and Simon Genovese Capolo's brother-in-law. President Fred Devine, who had been linked to the Colombo family, appointed Pironi and Simon to their positions. In September 1994, Convoy attempted to implement a non-discriminatory job referral system for highly desired jobs at Javits Center. Pironi and Simon fought the plan with Devine's support. 
Devine refused Convoy's demand that Fiorono and Simon be replaced. In October of 1994, Simon resigned his position as the Carpenters Union's top official at the Javits Center, but remained at the center as a highly paid shop steward. Conway brought a disciplinary action against Simon, charging that he brought discredit to the union by using a pool list allowing non-union members to work at the center, submitting a false application to international union and receiving compensation from an employer in violation of the Taft-Hartley Act. Simon resigned from the union. In December of 1994, Conway filed disciplinary charges against Fioroni, no, alleging eight violations of the UBC's standard of conduct, including knowingly associating with members of organized crime, discriminating against rank-and-file members, threatening a union member with physical harm, acting on behalf of a contractor seeking to hire non-union members, participating in labor bribery schemes, allowing men suspended from the union to continue to work at the Javits Center, falsely representing his own qualifications as a carpenter when he applied for union membership and violating the district council bylaw against invoking the Fifth Amendment before a committee of investigation. The IHC panel found most of the charges proved and expelled Fiorono from the Union for Life. The governor's office had announced a plan that the center would hire a permanent workforce, eliminating dependence on the union's hiring hall. Current workers had to resign and could reapply if they desired. New hires were screened for criminal records and LCN ties. This turned the center around. Conboy requested the Carpenters International President Douglas McCorran to impose a trusteeship on the district council. They appealed this to the International Executive Board. More than 100 people testified. Convoy testified that Fred Devine took cash payoffs, appointed Fiorono, refused to dismiss Fiorono, made corrupt job referrals, and mismanaged district council's cash reserves so that its net worth dropped from $6.45 million in 1991 to 224,000 in 1996. Devine spent 389,000 on private jets in a period of 30 months. Devine supplied the staff with luxury cars and paid twice what legitimate car dealers would charge. Devine's $25,000 car allowance did not include gas, oil, maintenance, or insurance. The union paid Devine's girlfriend 60000 as a consultant. Devine's driver was paid 60000 a year out of the trust fund money. The hearing committee not only determined the trusteeship was proper, but extended its length. Devine's son and Bernard Cohen, the district council's general counsel, were terminated. Cohen was later charged by the Manhattan district attorney for stealing more than 150000 from the district council by overbilling and inflating the expenses of a lobbyist who worked for him. In October of 1996, court approved another six-month extension for IRO Convoy. Because of the district council's shaky financial status, 
Conboy agreed to cut his compensation from 65000 a month to 45000 and agreed not to seek any more extensions. On March 3, 1997, President McCorrin extended Conboy's tenure through March 4, 1998, then in June 4, 1998, then a 12-month extension. In 1999, the Carpenters International Union dissolved the trusteeship. In January 2000, Local 608's President Michael Forte was elected President of the District Council. In 2000, the Manhattan District Attorney charged Forte and several Cosa Nostra co-defendants with taking bribes in exchange for ignoring violations of the Collective Bargaining Agreement. Forte became the fourth consecutive district council president since 1980 to be charged with labor racketeering. Nevertheless, he was elected in 2002 as executive secretary slash treasurer with 80% of the vote. On June 28, 1988, Rudy Giuliani, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, filed one of the most remarkable lawsuits in American history a civil RICO sued against the International Teamsters Union. The complaint named asked defendants, the union leadership, the IBT, Cosa Nostra Commission, and 26 Cosa Nostra members, including Genovese, crime family boss Tony Salarno, Lucci boss Anthony Corolla, Chicago outfit boss Joey Upa, and Milwaukee crime family boss Frank Balistraria. The other defendants were members of the IBT's General Executive Board and 18 present and former GEB members, including President Jackie Presser and General Secretary Treasurer Weldon Mathis. The government alleged that even with 191 criminal convictions and 22 civil enforcement actions, the IBT general president and or any member of the GEB had not conducted any investigations or disciplinary actions regarding labor racketeering. Giuliani asked the court to remove the GEB members and to establish a trusteeship to oversee the union affairs and supervise a national election. Former general president Roy Williams 1981 through 1983, and former Cleveland LC and boss Angel Leonardo were cooperating witnesses. On March 13, 1989, the IBT and the Department of Justice agreed to a consent decree. The union agreed that there have been allegations, sworn testimony, and judicial findings of past problems with Cosa Nostra corruption of various elements of the IBT and agreed that the IBT should be free of any criminal element and should be governed democratically for the sole benefit of its membership. The consent decree barred the crime family defendants from any future involvement with the IBT, changed the IBT constitution to require democratic elections for international officers, members from associating with LCN members and with any expelled member. The consent decree gave the independent administrator authority to discipline union members and officers and to impose trusteeships on IBT locals. 
to veto any IBT decision that would further labor racketeers' interest. The General President and GEB maintained the day-to-day -day administrative authority and to negotiate collective bargaining agreements. The consent decree set out rules for future national elections, including direct secret balloting and campaign donation rules. William McCarthy, with the support of the New England Patriarcha crime family, became general president following Jackie Presser's death in July of 1988. He signed the consent decree, but had an immediate change of heart. Several IBT local filed lawsuits stating they were not bound by the consent decree as they were neither defendants in the civil RICO suit nor signatories to the consent agreement. Judge Edelstein thwarted the strategy first by combining all IBT consent decrees litigation in his court and then by ruling that the consent did bind the IBT locals. The IBT fought back refusing to reimburse some of the court-appointed officers' expenses and resisted the IA's effort to inform the rank and file of actions against corrupt IBT officials. At its 1991 convention, the IBT refused to enact constitutional amendments per required by the consent decree. I.O. Corberry and staff brought disciplinary charges resulting in reprimand to expulsion from the union. A 2004 state found that since the signing of the consent decree in 1989, 607 charges had been brought against 583 members and officers of the Teamsters, involving members or officers of 128 locals, led by Local 813 with 58 members or officers charged. 85 local presidents have been charged. 201 Teamsters were permanently expulsed because of IRB investigations and recommendations. The IBT International Union placed 35 locals and one joint council under trusteeship. A three-step process for the election of the IBT General President, General Secretary, and GEB members was created by Elections Officer Holland. 1. The IBT locals would hold secret ballot elections for delegates to the IBT convention. 2. The delegates would nominate candidates for national office. 3. All rank-and-file members would vote in a secret ballot election supervised by independent monitors. The IBT argued that the consent decree only gave Holland the power to monitor the election process for fraud. Judge Edelstein ruled against the IBT. The first direct elections of international IBT officers took place in 1991. Three candidates, R.V. Durham, a member of the GEB, Walter Shea, a career Teamster administrator who had essentially ran the union during much of the Fitzsimmons administration, and Ron Carey, a self-styled reformer who headed a large New York City IBT local. Judge Lacey ruled ineligible a fourth candidate, James P. Hoffa, a lawyer and son of Jimmy Hoffa because he had never been a Teamster. Kerry won with 48.5%. The 1996 election was hotly contested. Kerry's appointment was James Hoffa, who by signing 
on as an assistant to an IBT local president in Chicago became eligible to run in the 1996 election. Kerry won by a narrow majority of 52%, but the election officer refused to certify the results because of campaign finance violations. Kerry's campaign had donated $85,000 of IBT funds to political action groups which donated the same amount to Kerry's campaign. The election was ordered to be reran. In November 1997, another election officer barred Kerry from the rerun election and Kerry was eventually expelled. Hoffa won the rerun election in 1998 and in 2001 Hoffa's slate of candidates won a five-year term. Hoffa hired Edwin Steyer to run a reform effort called Project RISE, R-I-S-E. It had three components. One, rank-and-file initiative to draft an ethical practices code and enforcement machinery, a professional investigative initiative to assess the state of corruption and racketeering throughout the union, and an initiative to write an internal history of labor racketeering in the Teamsters. The Hoffa administration refused to implement the results until the IRB's enforcement authority was phased out. The second part of RISE resulted in investigations of every local that had ever been alleged to have been infiltrated or influenced by organized crime. It found no indication of organized crime influence in the vast majority of these locals. The third part was a history directed at the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York and Judge Dreska. Unfortunately, Rise fell apart in 2004, with Steyer and Kostler resigning, stating Hoppe's administration was blocking an investigation of Alcyon influence in their Chicago area, IBT locals, and their joint counsel. In 1958, the McClellan Committee found that LCN Chicago boss Tony Accardo controlled three Chicago-area hotel and restaurant workers' locals. Joy Upa, Accardo's lieutenant and later his successor, was secretly the boss of one of these locals. The Edge concluded that the Chicago outfit controlled H-E-R-E-I-U-N that General President Ed Hanley, who had been promoted from one of the Chicago area locals to the General Presidency, was the outfit's tool. A 1984 Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations report noted that Hanley had used mergers of locals, international trusteeships of locals, and personal transfers to solidify the International Union's control over local union officers and treasurers. It accused him of hiring a number of LCN members and associates as international union organizers and in other union positions. In 1979, Local 54's president in Atlantic City, Ralph Natale, an associate of Philadelphia's Bruno LCN crime family, was sentenced to 30 years for a variety of offenses. President Hanley appointed Frank Garris, an associate of Nicodemo Scarfo, the Philadelphia LCN crime family capo in charge of the family's Atlantic City interests. In 1981, the New Jersey Casino Control Commission and the Division of Gaming Enforcement found that LCN through Garris controlled Local 54. 
it ordered Local 54 to remove Garris and two others from Union office. The commission warned the Union that if it did not do so, they would be prevented from collecting dues from casino employees. Garris resigned, but Local 54 continued to employ him as a consultant. At subcommittee hearings, 34 witnesses, including both H-E-R-E-I-U officials and reputed mobsters, refused to answer questions, taking the Fifth Amendment right against compelling self-incrimination. The committee's report found that the Atlantic City and Las Vegas locals' dental plans served as a slush fund for LCN figures. Federal prosecutors brought criminal ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, charges against several officials and filed a civil lawsuit against Local 54's dental plan, the plan's administrators, and service providers. The union and certain providers settled these lawsuits in 1988, agreeing to pay the benefit plan $3.85 million. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening. Listeners, this is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. December of 1990, the United States Attorney for the Northern District of New Jersey filed a civil RICO suit against Local 54. General President Hanley, nine former and current Local 54 officers, and 10 LCN members and associates, alleging a 20-year pattern of racketeering. Nicodemo Scarfo, boss of the Philadelphia LCN family, Phil Lenati, former Philadelphia LCN underboss, Anthony Piccola, and Local 54's affiliated benefits plans and severance fund, 
The consent decree removed eight locals, 54 officers, and employees from the union's positions and permanently enjoined Frank Garris from participating in H-E-R-E-I-U affairs. James Flanagan was appointed as monitor of Local 54's affairs. He was authorized to investigate, audit, and reviewing all aspects of Local 54's affiliated plans and operations. He was also to serve as trustee of H-E-R-E International Welfare and Pension Funds. Flanagan found the local finances and operations in shambles. There was no representation available for members who wanted to file a grievance against their employer. All officers were fired or resigned. Flanagan set up election procedures, including an election grievance procedure. Candidates had to pass both FBI and Department of Labor background checks. In 1993, the first election was held with three of the four slates being controlled or influenced by LCN. One was headed by the imprisoned Natelli, the other by John Stampa, with Genovese crime family support. Had attempted to take over Bruno Scarfo family after Scarfo was convicted on RICO charges in 1990. Flanagan disqualified eight candidates because of their organized crime associations. In the 1996 election, more than 90 candidates ran for union office. No allegations of organized crime involvements were made. Local 54, one of the most racketeer-ridden union locals in the country, had been liberated and even transformed into a union with competitive politics. The monitorship was deemed a success by all and dissolved in February of 1997. The United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York filed a civil RICO suit against H-E-R-E Local 100 in 1992. The complaint charged that President Anthony Amodio and Vice President Anthony Amodio Jr. and Jack D. Ross were running Local 100 on behalf of the Gambino and Colombo Alcian crime families. It also charged the defendant union officers employed organized crime family members and associates in union jobs and committed or tolerated bribery, extortion, and violence. The case was settled with a consent decree that barred the Amodios from the union, installed Mary Shannon Little as trustee. It lasted 18 months and ended with the election of new union officers. The Department of Justice filed a civil RICO complaint in September of 1995 against the 250,000 member H-E-R-E-I-U alleging that since 1970, the GEB members had conspired with organized crime figures to obtain illegal payments from employers, embezzle union assets, and violate union members' Lundrum Griffin rights. Department of Justice and H-E-R-E-I-U filed a consent decree. The defendants agreed not to commit crimes, associate with organized crime members and associates, and allow barred individuals from exercising control or influence over H-R-E-R-E-I-U's affairs and not obstruct implementation of the consent decree. It required that H-E-R-E-I-U at the next national convention adopt an ethical practices code and establish a public review board to implement and enforce it. Kurt Muhlenberg was appointed as monitor 
for a term of 18 months. He had the power to remove H-E-R-E-I-U local, regional, and international officials for violating any provision of the settlement, committing any crime involving the union or its employee benefits plans, or furthering the influence of any organized crime group. He had the authority to appoint and discharge union members and candidates for union office and to disapprove collective bargaining agreements. The court ordered that at its 1996 convention, they adopt an ethical practice code that would define prohibited conflicts of interest by union officers. The monitoring was extended after 18 months for 12 additional months. Muhlenberg discovered that many of the locals had a history of organized crime infiltration and did not follow their bylaws, gave inadequate notice of membership meetings, failed to document expenses, failed to submit officers' bonuses and raises to membership for approval, failed to train officers, business agents, and organizers, promulgate personnel, pay scales, job descriptions, and performance. The International Union reimbursed business expenses without submission of receipts or explanations. He dissolved 11 trusteeships which the International had imposed to provide jobs to cronies including organized crime figures and associates. He placed five other locals under trusteeship because federal prosecutors had charged officers of these locals with embezzlement and are filing false reports to the Department of Labor. He permanently barred 23 individuals from participating in union affairs because of organized crime associations or failure to cooperate with the monitor. He barred two individuals from participation in union affairs for 13 years and two others from holding a position of trust in the union for three years. Mullenberg investigated President Hanley, who had been put in power and kept there by the Chicago outfit. He charged Hanley with using union automobiles, the union airplane for personal purposes, receiving unearned salary and pension contributions, associating with organized crime members, and setting up a paper local near his Wisconsin vacation home so an individual could serve as facto for Hanley and his friends. On February 19, 1998, Hanley agreed to retire and pay H-E-R-E-I-U $13,944 relating to his purchase of H-E-R-E-I-U leased cars. He also took over payments on the premiums on a life insurance policy that the union had purchased for him. In return, Mullenberg agreed to cease investigating Hanley's actions during his general presidency. Hanley's retirement package included a $350,000 annual salary for life. Hanley's son, Thomas W., agreed to resign for one year and to reimburse H-E-R-E-I-U $25,000 in order to end an investigation into his abuse of union expense accounts. Mullenberg's final report was full of recommendations. On September 1, 1998, the GEB voted to implement all of his recommendations on structure, governance, and operations of the international and locals. The monitoring was ended in 1999 
but before that he expelled John Agathos and J.R. from their positions as Local 69 President and Health and Pension Fund Administrator because of their links to organized crime. After the monitoring ended, a public review board was established, which was responsible for overseeing implementation of the Ethical Practices Code. It has authority to review member complaints and to conduct hearings to ensure ethical standards in the union's operations and power to suspend or expel members found to have violated the code. Hanley was replaced as General President by John W. Wilhelm. The monitoring lasted just 36 months. The new president enjoys a progressive reputation and a reputation free of organized crime, but he has not repudiated Hanley or acknowledged the union's long history of ties to LCN. The end result of the monitoring was some improvements, but HERE has had several RICO charges on local since the monitoring. LIUNA at both the international and local levels, especially in Chicago and New York City, was like HEREIU closely tied to Cosa Nostra crime families. Outfit boss Tony Accardo had a great deal of influence in the union for many years. He and his successors controlled LIUNA and General President Peter Pasco and his son Angelo and the officers of many locals. The Department of Justice presented LIUNA officials with a 212-page civil RICO complaint late in 1994, alleging that LCN crime families dominated the 800,000-member union. The complaint named 39 defendants, including General President Arthur Cola, General Secretary Treasurer Roland Vinoil, all 10 vice presidents, and the union's general counsel. It alleged that the defendants violated the rights of LIUNA members through intimidation, violence, and economic coercion, and that the union defendants violated their fiduciary duties to the members by failing to investigate, prevent, or remedy corruption. As a remedy, the government sought the expulsion of COLA and the other union leaders, and requested that one or more court liaison officers be appointed to carry out the duties of the General President and the GEB, and to prevent any GEB action that would violate union members' rights or perpetuate criminal influence in the union. Department of Justice offered the union an opportunity to respond to the allegations. Arthur hired Robert Luskin to represent the union in negotiations with the Department of Justice. Luskin tried to persuade Cola that it would cost millions to fight the government and they would lose. At the same time, he was telling the Department of Justice that a trusteeship would alienate the rank and file and be less effective than internal reform would be. LIUNA and the Department of Justice announced a unique settlement after three months of negotiations. LIUNA would sign a consent decree agreeing to an external court-appointed monitor, but the Department of Justice would not file it with the court for 90 days or longer if at any time they were dissatisfied with 
LIUNA reform effort. This agreement was extended to 2001 and later to 2006. LIUNA adopted Ethical Practices Code and established four new positions. One, GB attorney, billed by Luskin, to investigate and prosecute violations of the Ethical Practices Code. Two, Inspector General, billed by Douglas Gao, to investigate violations of the Ethical Practices Code. Three, Independent Hearing Officer, billed by Peter Vieira, to serve as judge and arbitrator in disciplinary cases, and four, appellate officer filled by Neil Eggleston. They established a new confidential toll-free number and a confidential post office box to solicit complaints from the LIUNA members. By mid-1996, the reform officers had charged Serpico, Vice President Robert Cobone was knowingly maintaining organized crime ties and had began more than 345 investigations, expelled 25 officers and members for violating the Ethical Practices Code, removed all the officers of LIUNA Local 210, placed Chicago LIUNA Local A under emergency trusteeship, and sent Steve Hammond to work with trustee Michael Shirtoff to clean up the racketeer-ridden New York City Mason Tenders District Council. The reform team also started an investigation of General President Cora. At its convention, LIUNA amended its constitution to require direct rank-and-file secret ballot elections of the General President and General Secretary Treasurer Increase the GEB from 10 to 13 members, requiring that 9 members be elected regionally so that the board would be more accountable to the membership. It changed its procedures for selecting convention delegates and eliminated several locals whose purpose seemed to be to provide convention votes to organized crime. The union adopted uniform job referral rules to prevent discriminatory hiring hall practices. Luskin hired an independent accounting firm to audit LIUNA's finances. Still, in the 1996 international election for general president, the only candidate to challenge Cora was Bruno Caruso. Cora was re-elected once again, showing the unwillingness or inability of racketeer-ridden unions to vote labor racketeers out of office. In November 1997, Luskin filed disciplinary charges alleging that Cora, knowingly associated with organized crime members, permitted organized crime to influence union affairs from 1986 to 1993, and accepted illegal payoffs from a LIUNA's service provider. Independent hearing officer Vieira acquitted Cora of the allegations of organized crime associations and influence but found him guilty of accepting illegal benefits from LIUNA service provider. He fined Cora $100,000 but did not remove him from office. The United States Attorney's Office in Rhode Island immediately brought criminal tax evasion charges based upon benefits Cora had received from the service provider. A plea agreement 
was agreed to. Cora agreed to relinquish the presidency and become general president emeritus for life at an annual salary of $335,516. On February 14, 1990, the U.S. Department of Justice filed a civil RICO suit against six ILA locals representing dock workers in the New York, New Jersey port, as well as their executive boards and officers. The Genovese and Gambino crime families, the Westies and Irish organized crime group allied with the Gambino family, and five waterfront employers. The complaint charged that the waterfront had been the setting for corruption, violence, and abuse of waterfront labor and business by New York La Casa Nostra families for more than 50 years. According to the government, despite the many criminal convictions that resulted from the FBI's massive UNIREC investigations in the late 1970s, the Genovese and Gambino crime families, by means of their influence in the ILA, continue to exert influence in many eastern seaboard ports. The government cited dozens of instances of embezzlement, solicitation, and receipts of bribes, benefit fund fraud, extortion of employers, and violation of the rank-and-file Lindrum Griffin rights. The Department of Justice asked the court to enjoin the organized crime defendants from participating in ILA affairs having any dealings with union officers and employees and committing racketeering acts. The Department of Justice asked the court to require the defendants to disgorge the proceeds of their RICO violations and to enjoin the defendant union's officers from knowingly associating with Cosa Nostra members and associates to appoint licensed officers for each of the ILA locals to discharge those duties of the executive boards, review the proposed actions of each of the executive boards, implement fair elections, and oversee union reform. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening. <laughs>